Welcome to Full Focus. In this episode, I sat down with legendary talk show host Montel Williams to talk about his 17-year run with the Montel Williams Show. We spoke about his upbringing in Baltimore, 20 years of military service, a little bit of weed, and valuable life lessons learned. Standing by. We're going in three, two, one. Full Focus. Montel, welcome uh, to Full Focus. Really good to have you. And I'm you know, really excited to speak with you. And, and the reason why I'm looking forward to this conversation is because, uh, because you've been doing this for a very long time. You've been in the entertainment industry for so long. Uh, and you've done a lot of things. Of course, the Montel Williams show is really what puts you on the map. But there's a host of other things that you've done along the way, directing, sure. acting. So we'll get into all of that. You know? but, <laughs> okay. but before we do, um, I know you're, a, you're born in Baltimore and yeah. you grew up in, in Maryland, um, near Baltimore. What, 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 what was it like back then? Uh, I think 56 is when you were born. I was born uh, 56, yeah. 56 yeah. In, in a little spot in Baltimore. It's called Cherry Hill, which was at the time one of the nation's biggest ghettos and uh, literally um, about oh, half a block away from where I was born was the first um, hazardous waste cleanup site mm. that uh, you know the, the country funded because it was uh, the home of Bethlehem Steel and the dump that uh, Bethlehem mm -hmm. Steel dumped a lot of hazardous waste in. So yeah, I grew up in, uh, in an inner city setting and then my parents you know, worked really hard to get us out of the ghetto, we mm -hmm. ended up moving into a small suburb right in the southern part of Baltimore called uh, Morris Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, how old were you when you moved to Morris Hill? I uh, just turned seven. Oh, I see. So, so I did my first grade in, in the uh, in uh, Cherry Hill, and mm -hmm. then moved into the suburb uh, then. And what did your parents do at the time? Um, back then, my father was uh, my father was uh, had three jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a Jamaican. He, he's funny. Because, you know, uh, most Jamaicans talk about the fact that they don't have just one job. they got multiple jobs. So he was mm -hmm. a fireman. He was a carpenter. He also was a musician. And my mother was a, uh, a nurse's aide. And she also worked as a... Um, she was one of those those hidden figures that way back in the 60s, she was an African-American woman who ended up being a engineer for Bendex, which ended up becoming Westinghouse. So wow. she, yeah, oh, she's good a, for her. Yeah, so they're hardworking folks. Hardworking people, real, yeah. real hardworking people. Yeah. Absolutely. How did that influence your your upbringing? I mean, did you I think it's I think it's I think it's a fact that my I, I I was in a home where you know work was paramount, and you know uh, both mm -hmm. my father and mother you know having multiple jobs. It's what instilled a work ethic in me. I think even before I went in the military. So mm -hmm. I mean, it was I started working. I got a I lied and got a work permit when I was twelve years old. And uh, mm -hmm. and worked. Um, what was your first gig? Your uh, first job? Working in a restaurant. I worked. As a matter of fact, here's what really crazy. My first job, like so many Americans, especially in in the baby boomer generation, was at McDonald's. <laughs> believe it or not, I went to work at McDonald's um, and worked there for two days until <laughs> I looked across the street and there was a sign at a car dealership, "Help Wanted." So after my break at McDonald's on day two, I walked across the street to see what the double day want, and um, and I ended up getting a job washing cars on the lot of this car dealership. So you left your McDonald's job to go wash cars. And then I ended up going back to restaurants, and then I I did I followed in my father's footsteps. I started playing music when I was maybe thirteen years old. What instruments did you play? I sang. I played bass. I played trumpet, and. Uh, 
I started gotten a couple bands, 13, 14, 15 years old, and ended up literally working in, in nightlife and in bands around the Maryland area for until I graduated from high school. Wow, wow. And then eventually you then went into the military. Is, did you, yes. is that when it happened? Were you living in Maryland when you decided to join the, yes. the military? Yeah, I, I, had a, I had a really very successful school career. I ended up being the president of my class in my junior year, president of my class my senior year. I was, a student on a, I was elected as a student on the Board of Education in my county um, for my senior year. I was a, the, what do you call it? I was the Chesapeake Regional Association of Student Councils parliamentarian my junior year. I was a... Uh, you're a high you know, achiever. Hey, I, was one of, I was one of those kids. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then when I, I, I literally messed around, though, and hadn't focused on college after graduating from high school because I thought I was going to be a rock star. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up, uh, it was too late. I, ended, I, I, I received the Martin Luther King Award for the state of Maryland uh, in 74 when I graduated from high school. But What's that award? It was a, reward, a little scholarship, a little money to go to college. And I literally had not even applied because I was messing around with a band thinking that we were getting ready to be like the next best thing. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, my, my band ended up breaking up and um, I was kind of high and dry. So I just literally walked into a recruiter's office and I, I had a friend of mine who was a, really a friend of my brother's mm-hmm. who inspired me when he came home. Uh, he had been in Gitmo in uh, mm-hmm. Guantanamo Bay in Cuba and had gotten shot, believe it or not, and came home on, you know, convalescent leave, but he was in his uniform and he just mm-hmm. looked like, you know, a million bucks. And I, I remember, you know, you're, you're thinking about this, this is 1973 when he came home mm-hmm. and I um, went down, I think the next day, and I literally signed up in a delayed program and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, but you know, if you think back, seventy three, seventy four, this is back in a time when we had just mm-hmm. gotten through Cali and we had just gotten through Vietnam War, and and mm-hmm. you know, we were a nation that was divided, and really this whole sense of I support the troops and thank you for your service was something that was never ever seen. Right. So I went to boot camp, and I remember leaving boot camp and <laughs> stopping at a restaurant in Virginia, a place that you would think that there would be nothing but military support, and the person spit on the ground because I had a right. uniform. Right. So. I enlisted long before it was Vogue, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. Like, how was the... That, you did it for a long time, like 20 years. Yeah, yeah I went in the... I enlisted in the Marine Corps and very quickly got meritoriously promoted three times uh, or two times. Mm-hmm. I had Lance Corporal and, and uh, PFC and Lance Corporal, and then I made Corporal before I transitioned from the Marine Corps into the Navy because I entered the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Mm-hmm. I went to the Naval Academy for four years, graduated with a degree in engineering and a minor in international security affairs. What? And unbeknownst to me and most of the medical world back then, I was misdiagnosed, but I probably was showing signs of MS mm-hmm. right then. Misdiagnosed. Uh, when I graduated, I was considered not physically qualified because right. I had gone through a bout of MS mm-hmm. and nobody could understand what it was. And so I was not allowed to go back into the Marine Corps because I, what one of my bout ended up causing me to lose vision in my left eye. Mm-hmm. And the Marine Corps doesn't accept people in unless you have correctable vision. My vision wasn't correctable. Right. So I ended up being commissioned as a naval officer. And my choices were really either go to supply corps or special duty intelligence. And I studied Chinese at the Naval Academy, so I picked special duty intelligence. Mm-hmm. I became a special duty intelligence officer and uh, then ended up spending more time at sea than most of my contemporaries who were supposedly physically qualified. You know? So you were out on the on a on a ship most of the time. In, I, on was the on, I was on I was on on ships 
on the water, on ships below the water, on airplanes above mm-hmm. the water, mm-hmm. on islands where we were invading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did it all. One experience. I mean, you probably saw a lot of things. You learned a lot, right, during that time? Learned a lot. Learned a lot about myself. Uh, I think I learned more about me than I did anything else. I think I learned, you know, my ability. I mean, I, I did, you know, three submarine deployments of of 90 days or more mm-hmm. under the water. The hatch mm-hmm. closes, you know, and doesn't open again for 90 days yeah. minimum. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's 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 one of, I think, one of the hardest duties that anybody could actually pull because, you, you know, you disappear. And, you know, that's, a, that's three months, a quarter of a year that's gone that you don't get back. You in a uh, submarine? Oh, yeah. I was on subs three times. Three full deployment submarine deployments. And I, I ended up, you know, because of my work there, I, I received a lot of awards for my work mm-hmm. in my submarine duties, wow. and um, ended up running a submarine program out of the National Security Agency. After I finished that, for uh, a large part of my career. Wow! And and no mention of television or wanting to be on TV or any of that. This, is there a thought that is even no. like crossing your mind at that time? How did you even get interested in wanting to do that? I, I was, you know, go back to my high school days. I, you know, I was a, I was a thespian. As a matter of fact, I was the president of our national thespian, of our thespian society at our school. Um, yeah, what? I, Thes- th- thespians, which is the, you know, uh, acting mm. uh, club. Got it, got it. So, I mean, I did school plays, and I was, again, I, I, I had a penchant for being in front of crowds. So, you know, I was in a band. So all those things together kind of formed this, you know, entertainer mm-hmm. portion of my life. And then... I put it on hold, and then uh, mm-hmm. in 1988, I started a program while on active duty, speaking to kids in schools across the country. And I know it sounds mm, weird, but I literally took my leave time and would speak in high schools across the country um, to high school students from the ninth grade to the twelfth grade about everything from staying in school, staying off drugs, staying away from sex, and those kind of things. And this is back before. You know, schools in America allowed anybody even walk in the door. There was nobody doing what I did. As a matter of fact, it was it was so profound that uh, Nancy Reagan even reached out, and uh, Ronald Reagan flew me to flew me to the White House to you know congratulate some of the work that I and the team member of mine was doing in schools. And then because of that, I mean, in a in a short period of time. In three years, I spoke to about a million and a half kids face to face. Why? And why did you? Decide, why did I, you? Wh- I, how did you come up with that? It was, uh, you know, I, I, it was really funny. I got asked by a friend of mine, a graduate from the Naval Academy, a classmate of mine, to come and speak at a conference he was doing on leadership. Spoke at that conference, and this was at. Kansas State University back in 1988, January of 1988, I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. And in the audience were teachers and some school supervisors from around the country. And a guy said, hey, you know, I would really like for you to come and speak to the kids in my school about what you were just talking about. I said, of course. So I took mm-hmm. leave and did it. Got it. And then the next thing I know, I had spoken in 60 schools. You having fun every, with it. I was having fun everywhere I was going, but everywhere I went, it became a media event. I would show up at a school and talk to kids about staying in school, staying away from drugs, staying off of sex, 
and every local channel two, four, six, eight, ten would yeah, show okay. up mm -hmm. and cover military guy comes to high school here and talks to the kids and the kids had a rousing response to this guy. <laughs> and, you know, it's so much so that between January of 1988 and May of 1988, I spoke to about 60,000 kids and that got featured on NBC Nightly News and the Today Show. And the thing that was so crazy about it was that the, the headline was Navy spy talks to kids about being on a straight and narrow. That's Were what you a spy? Well, you know, security constraints preclude me from discussing what I did while on active duty. Oh, it's still, to this day. To this day. Yeah. So, I, 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 while I was on active duty, I held the highest clearances that this country has to offer. Um, and I serious worked, stuff. I worked out of the National Security Agency in uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. So, right. that should give you an impression. You're privy to some of Yeah, privy to some, some mm -hmm. really, 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 some of, some of the most dangerous, I think, mm -hmm. and at the time, vital information that we were collecting mm -hmm. um, in the entire security world. Mm -hmm. and But here I am speaking in schools, and when they look at what I do, they were a Navy spy mm -hmm. talking to kids. And that's what we literally got NBC Evening News and the Today Show. I was on the NBC Evening News, and then the next morning, Jane Pauley interviewed me on the Today Show. Mm -hmm. And that interview, when I walked <laughs> off the set, the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, called NBC and said, we need to talk to this guy. So that afternoon, I was flown down to D.C. to meet with the president the next morning. Exciting. And it was exciting. Yeah. And, and But it also blew my cover in a way, you know, everything that I was doing in the military mm -hmm. and it made it impossible. I was, mm -hmm. I was plastered on newspapers across the country, which, you know, how can you be a spy and everybody knows what you do? <laughs> so uh, I had to make a choice and the military mm -hmm. really honestly told me to make a choice. Uh, mm -hmm. Either, you know, stop doing this, working with kids or, you know, uh, and get back to your job mm -hmm. and, or go ahead and retire mm -hmm. and, and get out or come off active duty. So I decided to go off active duty then and stay in the reserves. Mm -hmm. And I started something called a nonprofit organization. It was called Reach the American Dream. And that nonprofit, through that nonprofit, I spoke around the country to about 1,200 schools across the country. And what ended up happening, I'll tell you, it's a very, very funny story because a lot of people don't know this. Again, one of my sponsors was Pepsi. And Pepsi in 1990 decided to team up with a producer in Los Angeles to distribute the motion picture Glory to every high school across the country. And they did so after reaching out to the, the National School Board Association and uh, because they had been paying me quite a bit and putting their signage up in the rooms, they asked me you know, if I would do an open for the movie Glory as they put it in these schools. And I said, yeah, of course. So I did an open. You can actually Google it these days and say Montel Williams does the open for Glory that's distributed in high schools. And it'll come up. And you should take a look at that because it's really kind of funny. The producer of that movie, his name was Freddie Fields. He didn't even know that Pepsi was doing this and buying all these copies and sending them out across the country. A copy shows up on his desk. He puts it in the video machine. This is a VHS, VHS tape. Yeah, yeah. He puts it in the VHS machine, and there's my mug. Hi, I'm Monta Williams. I do this whole speech. And he was trying to figure out, who the devil is this guy? 
So I'm literally in my office in Colorado, and he calls up, hey, pal, what are you doing on my movie? Who gave you permission to do that? He didn't know. I was like, dude, who the hell are you? I don't care who you are. Click, hang on. And then I realized who this guy Freddie Fields was, and Freddie Fields happens to be one of the most prolific uh, producers in, in all of Hollywood history, and one of the most prolific agents in Hollywood history. Um, Freddie Fields, as a matter of fact, he did Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Poltergeist 1 and 2, um, he started what ended up becoming CAA after a split from a couple other organizations. The agency. Agencies. And so <clears throat> I called him up and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, dude, um, you know, I'm running around this country going to school at a time. Why don't we hook up together and do a big film about what I do? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can distribute it. And he said, well, come on out here and let me talk to you. And I literally flew out to meet with Freddie Fields on December 23rd. 1990, mm-hmm. by January 25th, 1991, I was in contract negotiations with seven different uh, syndicators for the Monto Wim Show, and literally ended up deciding on Viacom, signed a contract like April 1st, and they flew me to LA on May 1st. Literally, I had two weeks to yeah. close an office in Colorado, move to LA, they gave me an opportunity to do three practice shows on May 8th. I went on the air the following Monday. Wow. Yeah, and I had yeah. never been a host of a TV show. I didn't even know what the tally light was on the front of the air on camera. So I went on the air, and, and, uh, uh, and the rest then is history. The wow. show stayed on the air for 17 years. Let's talk about the, the Montel Williams show. Yeah, 17 sure. years. I mean, what a success story, really, right? Five Emmy nominations, right? You you won yeah. the Emmy. I won the Emmy as a talk show host, and I got nominated four other times as... Four other times, right. For as... For best show or best host. Yeah, and and in 1996, I think you won for you know outstanding yes. talk show host. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I mean, 3,500 shows. I think over 30,000 interviews. It was over 3,200 shows. I averaged mm-hmm. eight guests a show, so I did well over. I, I got to tell you, around 30,000 people sat on the stage beside me. Wow. And then I had well over 300,000 people in the audience. So 17 years. It, it's nationally syndicated yes. right how do you like every is it every day you taping every day how's that no I, I i literally did something that most people in television curse me for these days and the majority of hosts of talk shows curse me for but i was the first host to be able to do three shows in a day so i did three shows oh. on uh, two days a week and sometimes I did three shows three days a week so that every sixth week I could give my crew a week off right, right. from production, right. work on the next six weeks worth of shows. You did more than just host a show. I was the executive producer of the show. I'm the creator of the show, executive producer of the show, and I took over the reins of executive producing the show about three months in. When they first started the show, you know, it was Viacom, you know, tried to hire, uh, they hired a producer, executive producer away from Oprah Winfrey show, and um, they uh, uh, brought this person in, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, almost every day it was a fight. You know that little that little barking is my doggy. That's your dog, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 every, every day, every day was a, a fight yeah. over the topic. I literally had arguments sometimes with the, with the EP with, with the, the EP, EP yeah. leaving fingernail marks down the road because mm-hmm. back then this is 1991. You know mm-hmm. we did every topic under the sun. I mean, you know, and, and back then, a lot of the talk was really salacious. Oprah was on, it was Oprah, Sally, Phil, mm-hmm. Geraldo, mm-hmm. and Donahue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything from strippers to, you know, uh, uh, polygamists to mm-hmm. you name it. And um, in the first three months of the show, I was trying to compete with every topic that everybody else was doing. Right. And 
a couple of times I left literally left fingernail marks down the hallway because I didn't want to go in that studio and tape that show. These people said, oh, you got to do it. It's going to rate really well. Sally right. did it last week, and it rated really well for her. And um, I did a show I'll never forget. I did a show. This was maybe in September of my first year. I started in, in again, May. And that's another part of the reason for the success of my show. Mm-hmm. When my show went on the air, there was only Sally, Geraldo, Oprah, Phil. All right, that's it. And Regis and Kathy weren't even considered a daytime talk show. They were a morning mm-hmm. entertainment show. Mm-hmm. I started in May with them. So my show immediately got compared to those five shows that existed. In September of that year, show started, Ronald Reagan Jr. had a show. Mm-hmm. John Tesh and Lisa Gibbons had a show together. Mm-hmm. A girl by the name of Jane Pratt, a woman named Jane Pratt, who had the Jane magazine, had a show. Mm-hmm. Chuck Woolery had a show in September of that year. All the news compared those shows to the existing talk shows. Mm-hmm. So they lumped me in with the mm-hmm. the crew that was the original, the original crew, crew yeah. rather than the new breed. I, I got see. lumped in with the, because I had already assessed my show. Mm-hmm. So Timing was good for Timing you. was perfect for mm-hmm. me because all four of those shows got canceled and I stayed on the air. Right. And from the time that I went on the air as a talk show host to the time I came off, well over 140 other hosts attempted to do that job, came and went. Mm-hmm. Didn't last for more mm-hmm. than a season. What, what, what was it about your show, or you even, that kept you on so long? So I, long? I think the thing that made the biggest difference in our show was the fact that I, I, I wrote, I remember not forget this, I wrote out a card. As a matter of fact, at one point in time, uh, the producers had immortalized it and made it into a little plaque mm-hmm. that every producer had on their desk. And it said, the Montel Show, doesn't belabor what happens mm-hmm. as much as we try to figure out why things happen and then we will come up with solutions. So my show was not about the what, it was more about the why mm-hmm. and, and coming up with the solutions. So I think that's what kept me on air because immediately when I came up with that and put that on every producer's desk mm-hmm. was the day I fired that executive producer right. and I decided I was gonna executive produce a show myself. That we hired other people on and helped make them keep it moving. I literally approved mm-hmm. <clears throat> every guest every topic out of the 3,200 shows. Producers had to come to me, not to another person. I would hold producer meetings with the executive producer and have producers, their associate producers, and their their you know PAs all sit in a room. We would do retreats once every six or seven weeks, and they would have to pitch to me whatever idea they wanted to do as a show for the next six weeks. And after we talked through it, everybody sat in the room and talked about it, came up with what the requirements were to make that happen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about, well, I want to talk to the woman who just got stabbed in the face. No. <laughs> I want to talk to the woman who got stabbed in the face. I want to talk to the doctor. I want to talk to I, I wanted to get the list of why, and then why are we doing the show? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really just want to do it just to be able to mm-hmm. to project the salacious. I wanted to be able to at least offer people who are watching the, the show at home and living vicariously through those guests, mm-hmm. give them some options of what they could do if they were in the same situation. So over 30,000 guests sitting there, you know, all these interviews that you've done. I mean, you've yep. done so mm-hmm. many interviews. And that's just the one Monte Williams show. Sure. I mean, you've done more beyond that. Absolutely. Way more, right? Um, what, what makes a good interviewer, right? Um, listening. Yeah. A Talk. listener. Mm-hmm. You get more out of, you know, I, I, w- I would have, I, first off, you know, for every single show that I did, I probably had two hours of home study. A lot of other people don't bother to do that but I forced my producers to do pre-interviews of everyone. You like to be prepared. Uh, 
on the other side of prepared. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> we work yeah. together. I know, yeah, how, you know how prepared you like to be. But you know, if I yeah. get, I, I, I'm a voracious reader. I can, I can read and digest and and accumulate information. It's mm-hmm. it's now almost like a you know like a, a science. I, I I can sit down and read an article. I can hold the information in that article in this brain for probably two days, you know, down to the decimal point. And I want to have that information there and available at the tip of my tongue, no matter what's going on in that interview. So when I sat down to interview people, mm-hmm. the interview isn't about me having you know preconceived questions that I want to ask them. I want to find out what's going on in your life, and so. From the time, if you if you impress me enough to be on my stage, then I should be impressed enough to want to know something about you. And so when I start the interview, I start the interview with one question that really is more so I can listen and really hear what the person has to say. What about um, like like you said, homework obviously, but what about like empathy? When you're listening, oh, empathy—that that's that you have to have empathy. You have to, and and you know, I, I think that comes with knowledge. If you jump into an interview and you don't know the depth and the breadth of a person's experience, if you're interviewing a person like right now, I watch a lot of the interviews on TV, and I, I know the person that's doing the interview doesn't know anything more than the incident. So you know, you're going to go in, interview the person on the street who just was standing by when there was a a you know a mass shooting. Well. Did you stop before you asked that person the first question to find out who they are? It's so important to know who the person is that you're talking to because that's when you get the gems. You know what I mean? You get more, you may find out that the, the woman who was just passing by who said, well, as soon as I saw it, I ducked behind the car. That's not what we need to know. Mm-hmm. You know, have you ever been involved in anything like this before? Mm-hmm. What's your life like? Are you married? Do you have mm-hmm. children? You know, what's going on Go in your beyond. life? Go, Go beyond. Mm-hmm. Find out who that person is. Mm-hmm. And those questions, then you'll, 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 it'll lead you to a path of questions mm-hmm. that allows you to be empathetic. It'll allow you to, to reach inside of a person. I used to think, you know, I used to say it all the time. It's like, you know, the interviews that I did, I didn't just do them and review them on the surface. I mean, you know, I ended up taking those interviews home. I mean, a lot of times I, I study deeply about people and, you know, you're laying in bed at 11.30 at night after I did an interview five hours earlier and I'm still thinking about that person that I interviewed. Did your work and, ever interfere with your personal life? Like Almost definitely. Mm-hmm. There was a time when, when I know for a fact uh, it was so emotionally draining. And, you know, I did, if you look back at it, you know, most people, as they look back at the Montaigne Show, mm-hmm. they remember that our show dealt with real issues. We dealt with with real crisis. We did things that other shows didn't even come close to attempting. I was the only person when when Columbine happened. I was the only show that the kids wanted to come and talk to. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to go talk to other hosts because they didn't think they cared. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think almost every major disaster that we lived through uh, from 1991 until mm-hmm. my show went off the air, I was an integral part of. You know, I went to the Persian Gulf and spent time on ships with soldiers mm-hmm. deployed long before any talk show, daytime talk show, ever thought that that was something uh, that they needed to do. You know, a lot of people don't give talk shows of the 90s the credit that I think we deserve. But, you know, there were lots of national initiatives that were put in place because of talk shows. Like the fact that every automobile made since 1993, I think, has a latch in the back, in the trunk, that allows you to open the trunk from inside. Mm-hmm. Yes, Nobody yes. knew about that. 
Yes. But, but back then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, people would pull up and driving down the road, grab some child, throw them in the trunk, and the person's driving down the road. Well, I remember interviewing a young lady who was thrown in the trunk of a car and was quick enough to take the tire iron and punch out the taillight, stick her hand out the back of the taillight, and wave it at traffic. She didn't know who saw her. She was just wow. waving it. And that's what ended up getting somebody to call the police to come and get her out of that wow. car. Mm-hmm. And that's what made us think, wait a minute, well, why mm-hmm. can't you just pop something in the back and get out? Right. How easy would it have just put a little latch back there? Yeah. Car manufacturers wow. did that and yeah, changed yeah. that. You know, no, so, it's had the impact for yeah. sure, a real impact on. on and I mean, you yeah. know, the conversations that we had about you know lifestyle, about the fact that you know there are people in the society who deserve respect, whether you agree with their lifestyle or not, whether you know they be gay, transsexual, whatever, whatever, transgender, whatever. You know, we had conversations with people and actually told how those people feel, mm-hmm. and not just you know people who had different types of lifestyles, but you know we talked to people who were survivors of of of. Everything from the Holocaust to to tragedy. Yeah, you're you're exposing stories of people who you know people don't have access to those stories, but Correct. you would bring it into the living room. Bring it right here, real lives, some sort real of a connection with, yes. with, with the audience, right? Yep. Um, and, and so your show was taped in Los Angeles, but then also in New York. No, right? my show started. I hear it's a really very funny. Mm-hmm. My first year, I started the show in L.A., mm-hmm. and then by the end of the first season. Really, way before the end of the first season was when uh, '92 was when the Los Angeles riots took place. If you remember that, yeah. Well, I was trying to get guests on my show from the LA riots, and I was the only talk show coming from the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But all the guests got up in the morning or left the night before and flew to New York because back then all book tours, mm-hmm. all publicity tours started where in New York. You know, you had all the morning shows. So everybody wanted to do all the morning shows. So all the all the the news stuff, uh, the news guests would fly to New York the day before, so I could never get any. And I was really ticked because I mean, I, you know, it was it was this was in February of '92, where you know I'm trying to get guests on the show, and they were already booked on mm-hmm. Oprah or somebody else the day before because they had to fly out to do it. So I said, wait a minute, no, we got to change this. So I packed the show up at the end of uh, in the the in May of '92 packed the show up and moved it to New York and we stayed in New York ever since. What was the difference do you feel? Like you felt a big difference in the way that the production was, the guests, the, the situation just being in New York? It was a huge difference and, and I, I like to say it's funny, it's not an aspersion <clears throat> against anybody from the West Coast but <clears throat> you know, West Coast people are more accepting of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, he beats his wife, well, you know... Well, he does X, Y, Z, well, you know, it's okay. I'm just saying, people don't judge other people. They like right. to live in their own world and mm-hmm. and assess their life but not others. Whereas in New York, people are opinionated. What do you mean you got your hand in your pocket? Right. Take your hand out of your pocket. What do you got your hand in your pocket for? People had more of opinions. So, I mean, I remember, I remember the first year I was on, I'll never forget this. I'm on the air, I'm taping a show, and... You know, again, that first year we used to do all these weird behavior things, and I remember it was a guy. One of the guy, it was, it was, it was on a show about people who had different, you know, sexual preferences and different proclivities, and this one guy comes walking out on the set, and his wife got a dog collar on, and he's got a leash on her. He's pulling her out, puts her, sits her down beside him in the chair, and he's holding his leash. And I remember I stepped, you know, we were talking, I asked him a couple of questions, I got up and I went to ask this, get a, a question from the audience and the woman stood up, she goes, well, you know, if people 
don't mind, Daddy. Really, who are we to judge? I was like, who? <laughs> He's got to buy a leash, man. Stop. What? I got to get out of here. So I'm sorry. So I, I literally flew to New York. And the second I went to New York, and I, I taped, I remember, during the L.A. riots, I taped a week of shows in New York and had more energy from the audience, the the the, the television audience that I had from anybody yeah. uh, okay. to date. So I yeah. said, no, we got to get here. So we moved it. So the TV audience, the, the, the mm-hmm. people who were actually there in the audience, was one of the big differences. And mm-hmm. then from a production standpoint, the pace is a little faster. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got people in and out. And that's when I literally shifted from doing one show a day, mm-hmm. four days a week, and then two shows on maybe Friday, mm-hmm. so on the fifth day. And then I shifted over to doing three shows mm-hmm. twice a week. Wow. Um, how long was it in New York? How long did you take in New York? 16 years. I was on the air for 17 years. Just one year in, in Los Angeles. One year in LA and, and the rest of it in New York. the bulk of it was, was yep. in New York. Yep. Wow. And and what you just did there, that was that was cool. It was acting. And that's hmm. another passion of yours. Oh, yeah. You I, love to act. I, I, I mean, you do I, a lot. You, you make a lot of guest appearances. Yes. And you've been in, in movies and shows. Jag. I mean, I, you know, I mm-hmm. can go on. Even today, we just did something for, for the resident. That yeah, Fox, that's right? cool. Um, all my children. Yes. Uh, daytime. Uh, soap opera. Uh, well, tell me about that passion, the, the acting stuff. You know, it's very, really crazy. I was just in LA two weeks ago looking for some more acting gigs, so I'm, and I think they may come. <laughs> I, you know, again, go back to my high school years. You know, if if, if you pull up, I think you can do it these days. You can pull up your books, but you know, I I uh, uh, was you know part of the National Thespian Society, which is the Actors Society for uh, you know for stage acting, and I did at least two plays a year, every year from my ninth grade year until I graduated from high school. Um, I really enjoyed the live feedback from an audience. Remember, I even did a Broadway play, which was called The Exonerated, um, mm-hmm. and did multiple dates with that. I did about 40 dates with them all over the country. Talking about experiences, I mean, you've been doing this, like, like we talked about at the top of this, you know, for a very long time, um, and you have you have experience, right? Mm. Um, if you look back now, you know, at, at all your years in the industry, um, tell me a little bit about some of the valuable experiences and some of the takeaways you have. You know, looking back, what are some of the things that you feel like, hey, maybe I would do this differently today, or if I had done this or that, you know, give us a little bit of that, you know. Uh, share well, you know, that. I mean, I, I look back, you know, one of the things that I think that, that, and some people tried to remind me of this as I was going along, is that, you know, life is fleeting. And, you know, when you're in it, you think it goes on forever the way you're in it, but it doesn't. You know, here I am, 17 years, I had a show for 17 years on a talk show, and I can barely, you know, I can get meetings right now, but, you know, the chances of me getting any major production now from this point forward in life is probably slim. Um, you know, uh, we have such a, a short attention span these days. You know, I'm, I'm old news in Hollywood, you know, which, which seems weird. Uh, our show that we're doing right now, which is Military Makeover, is, is getting rave reviews, and, and as it stays on the air, it gets more and more and higher rave reviews. But Hollywood has this, this, this thing where you're only as good as your last project. And I think you look across the board at almost anybody out there, and they would say the same thing. You're as, only as relevant as what you did last week. And I wish I would have paid a little bit more attention to that along the way. And that's one of the things that I didn't. And, you know, also, you know, there were there were times along the way that I think maybe I felt like I knew it all. Uh, you know, I, I knew it's good for me. And, and, you know, I passed on some things that I probably, <laughs> I now look back and I kick myself and say, why did you pass on that? It was really stupid just to be, just to be a butthead. But at the same time, 
I had an opportunity to talk to 30,000 people. I mean, when you really put that in perspective, think about that, close your eyes and think about it. 30,000 people, most people don't have a conversation with more than one person a day. And they don't really have a meaningful conversation with more than one person a day. And I had an opportunity to to talk to 30,000 people and get 30,000 different perspectives on different things and got to study about 30,000 different people, 30,000 different lifestyles. So that was probably one of the things that I think I am happiest about because I, you know, I, I feel like I have a life that, you know, fulfilled. I mean, I, 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 I've ex- shared experiences with that many people. That's humanity, man. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was really good. And so what's then, a, tell me about one of the most humbling experiences that you've ever gone through and in, in, in career related, you know, um, maybe something like you just said, something like an opportunity that you may have. Well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I had a, I, I, I think humbling, I had a, a show that I literally created and was one of the writers on and, and executive producer on. It was a show that was called Matt Waters. That was a really, really, I thought, very, very good show. Show that the nation, we won our time slot for five weeks in a row, but a new president came to the network and just dropped the show. I mean, just didn't, it wasn't like, you know, he didn't like it. It was just like, I didn't create it, so you're going, bye. And there was no conversation. And that's what makes you understand how worthless you really are. No matter how great you think you are, you know, here's a person who just stepped in and said, I don't care. I don't care. Literally, I don't care. You know, and it's like, wow. You know what I mean? We just won our time slot five weeks in a row. You know, this this is gonna be one of the bigger shows on TV, but you didn't create it, so you don't care. I, I remember it took me a while to, 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 to get over the fact that my life was in someone else's hands like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, and this business, it's a lot of time. Correct. It is like that. Correct. Um, you're a very outspoken guy. You, sure. You, you go out there on, on different talk shows and you write op-ads for the USA Today, mm-hmm. uh, just recently a couple of them. Variety published some of your opinion pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's something that casting directors look look at, you know, in, in, in such a divided political sphere that we live in? Does it affect your work at all, like doing these kind of things? I, I don't really think so, again, because <laughs> that's another thing that just shocks me. I mean, I've probably done in the last two years 13 op-ed pieces that have been published and published in, in really high-profile you know, uh, 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 publications, and, you know, they're as prevalent as they are the day they come out, or they're as important they are that day, but the next day, people are on to something else, it's just like right this minute, and I mean, we, 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 you can't turn on the news and not see, you know, uh, the Hurricane Dorian, it doesn't matter what else happens in the world, we had a mass shooting two days ago, we had another mass shooting two days before that, not even on the air, not in the news. Nobody cares. It's like our attention span is this big. And I think it's the same when it comes to casting agents. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody runs around with a grudge or, or going, oh, you, they differ in my opinion, so I don't want to talk to them. They just don't put that much brain into it. Why are you so politically interested and passionate? Like, where did that come from? I think I think I'm when you say politically I am more I feel I'm more issue right. passionate 
you know, when, when issues strike me that are important to me, I feel I have a right to my opinion. And, you know, I mean, I, I put a uniform on my back for 22 years that said that I support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic. Well, the Constitution gives me the right to open my mouth and say when I don't agree with something. And, you know, I want to exercise that right that was given to me mm-hmm. by our forefathers. And now there are so many people trying to take it away. Didn't uh, the president come on your show when you had the Monte Williams show? I did have him on. As a matter of fact, I'm on the I'm the only person. I believe I'm one of the only one of. Or I think I'm the only person that gave him a full hour interview for his second book. The only person. How how often did you have him on? Just only had him on once. Only had him on one time, and I I really you know to be honest with you, he wasn't a good guest, so I, I didn't want to bring him back. At really? all. Yeah. I mean, you, you, this is you're in New York at this time, right? I was in New York at the time. And yeah. so is he, obviously. He was in, he New, York in New York also. I mean, you guys are two high-profile celebrities yeah. living in New York. You yeah. guys ever, like, were you acquainted at the time? Oh, I, I, we were, I, I will, you know, I, uh, <laughs> we were acquaintances and met together a couple of times. I got to leave it at that. Okay. I, yeah, I, 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 you know, when it comes to this president, I can only say that, you know, we as a society all day long, there are people like me and pundits like me who may disagree with what he's doing, may cast aspersions at some of the things that he does, but he's not the problem. As much as we want to try to sit back and claim he is the problem, he's not. I say in some ways create, talk shows of the 90s and reality shows created him. And we created him because we as a society have this voracious appetite for this spectacle. And we want to see a spectacle. And we opened the door to let him in. And we are the ones who are keeping the door open while he's there. So I, 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 I like to blame him for some of his decisions but he's not the one that we blame i think who we blame is the you know the electorate and you know they'll be who we blame when he gets reelected it, was he the same type of person in person he's it, never changed mm-hmm. he's never changed same. he's the same guy he's never changed you don't you guys don't talk anymore at all no yeah um Let's talk about military makeover. Sure, let's talk about military makeover. <laughs> let's move on from yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that already. It's a show you're currently hosting. It, yes. It's on Lifetime, uh, a show that I work on as well. Just full disclosure, mm-hmm. we work mm-hmm. on it together. Uh, we go around and we give uh, uh, veterans a home makeover from top to bottom. Yes. It's, it's just an amazing feeling to be a part of that and, and be a part of changing lives, right? Tell, tell me a little bit about that. You're also the co-executive producer. You like to be involved. Talk, sure. talk to me a little bit more about what you know what that show means to you. I, I tell you something. I, after you, you said it earlier that you know, you've got this long storied history in television and entertainment, I do. This will be one of those things that I, I put on a pedestal as high as my own The Monta Wim Show. I, I really believe this is this is content TV with a purpose that makes a difference. You know, we have so many people running around out here who use the term, you know, uh, thank you for your service or I support the troops. And they they say it almost like lip service, man. I mean, I think this is where the rubber meets the road, where we're literally going in. And you said it, impacting and changing lives, not just the life of the soldier 
and the family members of, of the soldier that we help with their home, but for a whole community, you know, for one minute or you know, for one week, a community stops what it's doing, stops being so selfish, self-centered, narcissistic, and reaches outside of itself to help someone else. Think about that. What other show on television right now is doing that? There's not one other show. I can't find anything on cable or anywhere else where people get the whole community together to come together to help someone else. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. So I, yeah. I, I, I really, I put it on a pedestal, and I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of it, and I'm just so proud that, you know, more and more people are finding their way to taking a look at it, and I know that we're, you know, constantly trying our best. I'm, I'm proud of being, you know, one of the, the co-executive producers and, and to be able to help to try to, you know, make it better in every way, shape, or form that we can. We're, and that's something else that I like about the show. I mean, you know, uh, for the you want to talk about behind the scenes, behind the scenes, I mean, you know, everybody from, you know, our production company, the president of the production company on down steps outside of itself to ask the question, how can we make it better? Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. I did my show for 17 years. I didn't have one member of the production company come in and say, how can we make you better? You know what I mean? They were trying to figure out how quickly they could get their paycheck and keep getting their paycheck, but not... <laughs> How can we make it better? Well, so, yeah, I really like this. Cool, awesome. Yeah, I yeah. know we enjoy it. Um, let's talk about Let's Be Blunt. It's a, you have your own <laughs> podcast. Come on my podcast and tell me about yours. <laughs> uh, 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 no, I tell you, Let's Be Blunt is, you know, I think a lot of people know that I've also been for now almost 20 years, long before it was Vogue and long before everybody jumped on the green rush, you know, in the bandwagon to, to extol the virtues of cannabis and cannabinoids. I've been a person that's been out there out in the front of the movement in a sense, trying to make sure that doctors and patients could have a private conversation and people who could use cannabis medicinally have a good efficacious product to use. You know, you talk about cannabis in a medicinal kind of way a lot, you know, and I know you're passionate about it. You've been doing this for a very mm-hmm. long time, way before there was that rush, right? Yeah. Um, what about recreationally speaking? Like, what's your stance on that? You know, when you say recreation, what we're really saying is adult use. Mm-hmm. And I am a real, I really believe this, and I'll say this till the cows come in. I think people who make a choice for cannabis over alcohol and other kinds of drugs, though they may not admit it themselves openly, they've done so because of some underlying medical lies kind of a reason. Maybe they have depression, maybe they have anxiety, maybe they have a sleep disorder, maybe they have something that they wouldn't categorize as a real medical issue, maybe a little extra pain in their back, maybe the fact that they just do it and they know they feel better and they're smiling rather than sitting around silent. So that to me, though we call it adult use, I think honestly is what the plant is known to do. And that's that we know that cannabinoids help put the cells of the body in a homeostatic place. So it's responsible for cellular homeostasis. This is what's been written about by scientific medical journals around the world. And if that's what it does, and it's something that mankind has been using now for 5,000 years, not, not, not you know, a year, not 10 years, 5,000 years, written about 3,000 B.C. in you know, the pharmacopoeia of medicine from China. So there's a reason why it's that way. And there's a reason why we, as mammals and other mammals, have something in our body that's called an endocannabinoid system, which is a system of receptors 
that are specialized to receive and be antagonized by cannabinoids. If you didn't even smoke or use marijuana in your entire life, you still have an endocannabinoid system. Why is it there? If it was put there by nature, it was put there because it was supposed to be stimulated, and it was stimulated. It's one of the only sympathetic nervous systems that we have, and it's a, 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 a nervous system that literally is one of the only one that sends certain chemicals in your body in a retrograde way, backwards through the nervous system. That was meant to be. You know, I've had some medical issues my entire life, mm -hmm. uh, my adult life. Mm -hmm. I have MS, um, and I also suffered a major hemorrhagic stroke a year ago. And I honestly, without any hesitation, credit my cannabis use to some of the reason why I'm doing as well as I am. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, man, how do you, how do you feel? You know, you feel you feel good. I feel great. I've been feeling you know, really, really speaking, good. right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I have MS. There's no question. I have MS. Mm -hmm. MS doesn't have me, but I have it. Um, and you know, again, having suffered the type of stroke that I suffered and the type of stroke that I had normally kills fifty percent of the people who have it. And you know, I'm less than a year or a little bit over a year yeah. later, I'm back and I'm so back. When 100%. we first met, you had it was about almost a year ago, and it had you know, yes. it was fresh still, right? and obviously it was fresh. you could still see, you know. You were still fragile a little bit, and yeah. you've come a long way. I mean, oh, you've definitely yeah. gotten a lot of strength. Of your strength, absolutely. Back. I think my strength yeah. is back, and you know, the longer, the the more distance I put between me and the event, the stronger I'm getting. But I, I honestly have to tell you that I've not missed a day of cannabinoids in my body since that stroke, and I right. won't miss a day between right. now and the time I die until we come up with something that is as efficacious as this. Sure, sure. What's next for you? Montel, what what do you want to do? What's uh, where are you at? You know, what are your priorities in life? It's funny. I I, I was talking to my son yesterday, and he's like, "Dad, you're 63. You know, it's like maybe it's time to to you know take it a little slower." And I, mm -hmm. I'm I'm not that guy. I, I my dad right now is 88 years old. He goes to work four days to five days a week as a tax arbitrator, and he sees cases every day. And he gets up, he puts a suit on, goes down to the office, does his thing, come back home. And he adjudicates real state tax issues. And, you know, I asked him a couple of weeks ago, well, no, a couple months ago, I said, Pops, come on, man, don't you think it's time to like, retire? He said, retire, why? Why, dude, I get to get up every single day, go to an office, and people respect me for what I do and respect me for what I know. What better way is there to live? And, you know, I, I don't see... Anything slowing me down uh, the next 20 years, easily. I mean, he, he's 88, I'm 63. Shit, I got at least 25 years. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, I hope we can turn this military makeover into a show that, that everybody gets a chance to watch. I agree. Montel, thank you so much for Thanks coming Thanks for having on. me, man. I really appreciate it. Thank no, you. No, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. you.